Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Today's episode is on corporate pensions and has been recorded for institutional and professional investors. I'm David Lebowitz, global market strategist and host of the Center for Investment Excellence. With me today is Michael Buchenholz, head of U.S. pension strategy in our institutional strategy and analytics group. Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence. Thanks. Thanks for having me, David. Of course. For our listeners who missed our most recent episodes, all upcoming Center for Investment Excellence episodes will focus on current market volatility and how investors can best position themselves to withstand both current and future conditions. Today, we'll be discussing how market volatility that resulted from COVID-19 is affecting the corporate pension plan space. We'll discuss the trends that we've identified by analyzing 2019 data from the 100 largest corporate pension plans by assets, and whether or not those trends are likely to persist throughout 2020. So, Mike, before we get into what's been going on in markets over the past couple of months, let's start by reviewing some of the trends that came out of your 2019 corporate pension peer analysis piece. At the start of 2019, funded status for this peer set was around 87.3%, And by the end of the year, it had only increased by about half of a percentage point. Given the volatility that we saw, however, over the course of 2019, you know, these numbers clearly don't tell the full story. Funded status actually fluctuated within a range of around seven percentage points during the course of last year. So to start, can you walk us through some of the main drivers of that variability that we saw in funded status in 2019? Sure. In our peer analysis paper, we looked at the top 100 plans in terms of asset size to try and get a sense of the trends across asset allocation and risk transfer and pension strategy that are occurring during each year. When we look at funded status, what we experienced was somewhat similar to 2018. So there was sort of this modest headline increase in funded status in 2018. It was about one half percent this year. It's about 50 basis points. But sort of underneath the hood, when you look month to month, there was significant volatility. And that's all really just driven by markets. So when we look at 2019, what we see in the funded status trend is really sort of this horse race is what we call in the paper between equities and bonds. So we know over the year, just about every asset class went up, but funded status kind of peaked around April and then tanked going into May as equities fell behind bond returns. But you know you plot the relative performance and you basically get the funded status trend over the year. So what we had is a very modest increase in funded status for the year. But surprisingly, at the same time, this kind of occurred against the backdrop of really amazing returns coming out of the market. So equities were up over 30% in terms of the S&P 500. But that was pretty much wiped out by a decline in discount rates kind of grinding slowly throughout the year down 100 basis points. And that was actually looking back, as far as we can tell, the largest decrease in discount rates over a year on record, at least since pensions have been using AA corporate bond discount rates. And to just put that in the context, what we're experiencing now, in about early March, discount rates for the year were down about 75, so not even as much as last year. And then we kind of saw this huge sort of EKG looking spike and retrace where they went up 150 basis points and then back down again. And we're actually right now kind of retracing the changes from 2018 in terms of where we are on the discount rate front. But some of our major takeaways here, looking back 
not just at 2019, but kind of the longer time horizon across the past 10 years for this set of plans were that most plans beat their expected return on assets. So we found that about 85% of plans had beat their investment returns. You know, this is always a sort of hot topic and expected return assumptions have grinded lower across all different types of institutional investors every single year. So that was good news. And not surprisingly, 2019, the average return on plan assets was, we calculated about 19%. So no one has an expected return assumption that high. So that certainly helped push some plans above the long-term trend. But when we look at returns relative to liabilities, we found that actually only about a third of pension plans have beat their liabilities. So I think this is should serve as a sort of a wake-up call to those plans still investing while ignoring their liability and not taking a liability-aware mindset. You know, we see that in 2019 where very good returns kind of didn't really move the needle on funded status. And it's kind of a microcosm of the larger picture where if you don't focus on beating the liabilities and just focus on beating your expected return, you may be achieving the small objective, but you're missing the big picture because at the end of the day, funded status is what matters and you need people to pay out those benefit payments to plan participants. And actually, Mike, that brings me to my next question. One of the things you mentioned in your latest paper, Into the Unknown, is you expect the fallout from the COVID-19 outbreak to have both long and short-term effects on plan sponsors. Will any part of the CARES Act help absorb some of this shock? And perhaps more importantly, will it be enough? Sure. So in this paper, we looked at a couple of things. I mean, before even looking at potential and actual legislation changes, we wanted to look at what happened to our peer set. And we estimated that those plans were down anywhere sort of between 5 and 15% in terms of funded status. What was interesting is actually we looked at their performance in terms of the actual sort of stocks, the equity performance of the underlying companies, and found that they performed significantly worse than the S&P 500 overall. Now, some of that could be idiosyncratic just because of the companies that have large pension plans, or maybe more so it's a function of the sort of large tech companies driving returns now that don't have legacy pension liabilities. But nonetheless, that was interesting and kind of a reminder that the plan sponsors that have large pension plans, and especially those with large public equity allocations, you know, that equity beta sort of flows through to the underlying plan sponsor and their stock price. But when we think about the CARES Act, actually, it doesn't really help any of the plans themselves, not at least directly. So the legislative relief we saw from the CARES Act for single employer DB plans was the ability to defer contributions that were required to be paid during 2020 to January 1st, 2021, as well as some relief on AFTAP calculations, which is essentially used to estimate or to determine if benefit restrictions are needed. So the big picture there is that that allows plans that have experienced a funded status hit to continue to pay lump sums to workers, for example, which we know is very important for a lot of plan participants who are struggling financially now. So deferring contributions to 2021, that sort of buys some time for plan sponsors who have taken a financial hit and need that liquidity and need that cash for other purposes. So that more helps the corporate sponsors. What was sort of more glaring was what was missing and a lot of what's been asked for by a lot of lobbying groups and industry groups, which is actual sort of legislative pension relief 
in terms of the calculation for contributions. And so we've seen a couple of proposals here from a number of groups falling into a couple different camps. One of those is extending the amortization period for calculating contributions from, say, seven years, which is the current, to 15 years. So what that essentially does is it doesn't change the onset of required contributions, but it makes them much smaller when you do have to pay them. We've also seen proposals to extend the corridor around discount rates. What that does, that would actually push the onset of required contributions farther out into the future. And of course, these two impacts combined would be the most powerful. But I think if one thing is sort of certain, we said this in the paper that Ben Franklin had said that death and taxes are the only certainty as well. Pension legislative relief in the face of any type of market stress, it seems to be a certainty, at least historically. So I think we see sort of a high probability that some of these changes will be adopted and will buy plan sponsors a bit more time. But of course, there's a bit of downside here as well, which is that pushing out contributions, and especially this year, where we've seen the deferral of contributions, and actually as plan sponsors have published their 10Qs and had earnings calls and published some 8Ks indicating that they are, in fact, many plan sponsors are taking this opportunity to defer contributions, whether they required or ones that they had planned to make on a voluntary or discretionary basis. So what that means is that there's a larger sort of pull on net cash flows. So the pension system had already been aging as there are more retirees, less actives, more frozen plans. And that kind of tips the scales rather than having inflows every year from contributions. There's more persistent and larger outflows. And cutting off contributions is just going to sort of accelerate this trend here. And that has implications for asset allocation and the way plans are thinking about structuring their portfolios. And I think that that's really the key point that we want to kind of land on as part of our conversation today. We've talked a little bit about what happened last year and the impact that volatility across capital markets can have on a pensions funded status. We've talked a little bit about how the rules of engagement, if you will, may change here, given the environment we currently find ourselves in. But to kind of wrap things up, Mike, how should plan sponsors be thinking about adjusting their pension strategy and asset allocation, not only given the current environment, but perhaps even with an eye on the way things may evolve over the next 5, 10, 15 years, so on and so forth. So just continuing the thoughts around the CARES Act and the impact on cash flows, that results in increased need for income and more and more plan sponsors are thinking about how to find and source that income, especially in an environment where many fixed income assets and especially treasury bonds are not giving you that much yield. And so we think core real assets is a area that can be very helpful to plan sponsors giving them low equity beta and high income. So depends on funding sources, but selling public equities into core real assets can bring down funded status volatility. And that's something we've been talking about for a while and increase income to facilitate benefit payments. But on the other hand, for plan sponsors that have sort of at the low end of that 5 to 15% change year to date, using real assets as a substitute for fixed income can actually make a lot of sense and have a sort of a minimal impact, but likely small increase in the funded status volatility 
but get a big pickup on returns given the yield differential between some of these asset classes like infrastructure and transportation relative to treasuries or high quality corporate bonds. Another area that there's been a lot of conversation about is re-risking and managing along your glide path. So there's been a lot of questions from plan sponsors about whether they should re-risk and when they should re-risk. And I think it's interesting that this contribution deferral, but really this longer term potential relief that may further push out contributions gives plans an opportunity to add risk to the portfolio. As pension relief was kind of coming to an end, there was a concern that funded status shocks like what we've experienced year to date would more quickly translate into actual contribution requirements. But if we're going to get an extension of pension relief, then this gives plans the ability to kind of run with more funded status volatility and to run with more risk to help them close these funded status gaps. Now, in that same conversation, there's kind of coming back to active management, especially in equities. We've seen a lot of plans really across all different types of institutional investors migrate some of their portfolio, at least on the equity side, to passive. But given the dispersion in markets right now, we think that active management is sort of right for a comeback, if you will. I think the last topic that we've had a lot of conversations about is diversifying hedge portfolios. So this is something that we have been talking about really for over a year as concerns build up in traditional corporate credit hedge portfolios where you've seen concern around increased triple Bs, increased corporate leverage, and you've essentially got a small number of corporate issuers that are heavily concentrated across many pension hedge portfolios, especially as they get better funded. Corporate spreads now have gone through sort of a wild roller coaster, but they're still wider than where they were year to date. So that may seem that there is an opportunity to add credit in hedge portfolios. And in small amounts, we think that that can be prudent. But diversifiers, and these are asset classes that give you long duration fixed income exposure, but different sources of risk and return like securitized asset classes, commercial mortgage obligations, and CMBS. We think these asset classes can make a lot of sense and really enhance the resiliency of hedge portfolios. And then the question that follows is, well, why now? Did you miss the boat because of the outperformance relative to credit in the first quarter? And we think the answer is no. All these concerns that we'd been focused on in 2019 have only magnified We've seen, I think, the largest issuance on record in March. And I just looked at the numbers that came out. Issuance was even higher in April. So companies continue to issue more debt. And then, David, something you follow closely, earnings expectations, and as they come in, continue to fall. So the leverage and default expectations have increased. So the downgrade risk is high, even in these high-quality corporate bonds. To summarize, we think that not only is it not too late for hedge portfolio diversification, it's almost more important now than it has been in the past. Excellent. I think it's a really key point. Obviously, a lot of different moving parts here. But Mike, thank you for taking some time today to help us make sense of all of this. And more importantly, thanks for joining us on the Center for Investment Excellence. Thanks. I had a great time. 
Thank you for joining us today on JP Morgan Center for Investment Excellence. CFA Institute members are encouraged to self-document their continuing professional development activities in their online CE tracker. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes anywhere you listen to podcasts and on our website. Recorded on May 6th, 2020. For institutional wholesale professional clients and qualified investors only, not for retail use or distribution, not for retail distribution. This communication has been prepared exclusively for institutional, wholesale, professional clients and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. To the extent permitted by applicable law, we may record telephone calls and monitor electronic communications to comply with our legal and regulatory obligations and internal policies. Personal data will be collected, stored and processed by J.P. Morgan Asset Management in accordance with our privacy policies at https colon slash slash am.jpmorgan.com slash global slash privacy. This communication is issued by the following entities in the United States by J.P. Morgan Investment Management Inc. or J.P. Morgan Alternative Asset Management Inc., both regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in Latin America for intended recipients use only by local J.P. Morgan entities, as the case may be, in Canada for institutional clients use only by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada Inc which is a registered portfolio manager and exempt market dealer in all Canadian provinces and territories except the Yukon and is also registered as an investment fund manager in British Columbia, Ontario, Quebec and Newfoundland and Labrador, in the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, UK, Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, in other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe S. A. Grave RL, in Asia-Pacific, APAC by the following issuing entities and in the respective jurisdictions in which they are primarily regulated. J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Asia Pacific, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds, Asia, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets, Asia, Limited, each of which is regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Singapore, Limited, Company, Reg. No. 197,601,586K, which this advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore. J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Taiwan, Limited. J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Japan, Limited. 
which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association and the Japan Securities Dealers Association and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency, Registration Number Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, Number 330, in Australia, to wholesale clients only as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, Commonwealth, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Australia, Limited, ABN 55143832080, AFSL 376919, Copyright 2020 J.P. Morgan Chase & Company All Rights Reserved.